Well, welcome to this week's edition of the Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. I'm your host, Todd, middle initial C. Walker. Yes, that's right, it's me. And we have a special show today. We have a gentleman who not only is a avid guitar player, has been in many bands over the years, and is in one currently, a trio actually. He is also a luthier and builds steel string guitars, although I have read a little bit about him, and he started off repairing pawn shop violins. Mark Joy is on the phone with me right now. Mark, how are you? I'm doing very well, Todd. Good to talk with you today. Thank you so much for doing this. And that is how you kind of started your luthier career. Is that correct? Uh, sort of. I did, did receive training. Uh, back in 1970, which is when I got my training, uh, there were no schools for being a luthier of any type. Uh, uh, outside of uh, the Mittenwald area of Germany. And if you didn't know somebody or have somebody in the guild, you didn't get in there. I know because I asked. <laughs> and I was, I was looking for, for a way to, to, uh, to change what I was doing uh, and looking for a career. I was, you know, a young youngster, 20 years old. And uh, so I wrote letters to every company in the United States I could think of from Martin to many other companies. And I ended up writing the Wurlitzer Guitar um, Violin Company. And they directed me to a man named Mel Melvin Schneider, Dr. Melvin Schneider, who was the head of the music department at Northern Iowa University and quite an accomplished luthier. And they said, this man may help you out. And so I wrote him a letter and he said, come out and live with me for a while. And I will teach you the fundamentals of stringed instrument repair, orchestra instruments. And so I went there and I lived with him with, for three months. And he did. And more than anything else, he taught me how to approach repair philosophically, how to solve problems the greatest gift he ever gave me. Now, what, when you said you were, you wanted to change careers into Luthery, what were you doing prior to that? I know you were 20 years old. And when I was 20, I was, I, had... I was 20 years old. I had dropped out of college. I had not been successful in college. I was not ready for it when I went into it. And, uh, I consequently was very unhappy and, uh, I got out and I was, sitting there thinking, well, I can't just lay around my parents' house and I don't want to work construction the rest of my life. It, uh, it, it, while it's a fine, noble career, and uh, it's, it was not for me. And I did not think at the time I had the talent to make a profession out of being a musician, but I was good with my hands. And I said, well, maybe I can learn to repair instruments. There's a lot more instruments in, out there than there are repairmen. I knew because whenever I had to get something fixed, I couldn't find anybody. Yeah. Back then, in particular. Now I can think of 10 different schools where you can learn how to repair guitars. Or 15. Back then, there was nothing. Anywhere. So uh, I was very fortunate to find this man. And he... Like I said, he taught me the fundamentals uh, fundamentals of repairing orchestra instruments, violins and cellos, how to rehair a bow. And uh, that's what got me started. And one day I walked into 
Chuck Levin's shop and was talking to them and asked them if they could use somebody because I wanted to learn more about guitars. I knew orchestra instruments, but I wanted to learn about guitars. I told him what I knew and he said, oh, can you rehair a bow? I went, yes. And so I started, I got my first job at Chuck Levin's rehairing violin bows mostly. And uh, because Chuck's had all of the contracts for the D.C. public schools and Montgomery County public schools, which was literally tens of thousands of school instruments. So I did repairs on cellos, violins, upright basses, and rehaired a lot of bows, thousands of them, and slowly picked up from the other work that came through the shop, working on guitars. Simply by being around it all the time, watching it, looking at it, and using my skills on problem solving to learn how it worked. Now, I would imagine, and again, I'm not a luthier. I can put a certain style of pickup in an acoustic guitar, but that's about the, maybe adjust the truss rod slightly. But that's the extent of my experience. But I would think an orchestra instrument, like a cello or a violin, would be so different from a guitar. Is it not? It is in, in many respects. But, but a lot of the techniques you use for repair uh, are, are very much the same. You have a carved arched top on a violin or a cello, whereas uh, most modern guitars, other than arched top guitars, which are very much like a violin or a cello, mm-hmm. are, are, uh, are flat. And, bra- and they have different bracing, different bracing patterns, and they work off a different energy generator. They, they generate their energy differently to produce sound. Oh, boy, we're going to start getting into the engineering of guitars now. I can see this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, how, you have, but go you ahead. have to understand how, how guitar produces sound or how any instrument produces sound. It takes energy from the vibration of a string and transfers that energy to the top of an instrument and then projects that energy out in the form of sound waves. And the problem with any instrument is in that transmission of energy, most of the energy is lost because they're just not efficient transmitters of energy. Hmm. Guitars may be well less than 10% of the energy that is put into a, a, the string being driven comes out of the, the, the sound, the top in sound. So little things that you do to an acoustic guitar to get an extra half percent or 1% make dramatic differences in what a listener hears or even the person playing the instrument hears. Because that while that it's only a tenth of a percent of the total energy from the string it's 10 percent of the energy that ends up in the air mm-hmm. and the 10 percent improvement in sound is a great improvement so now, uh, so that's that it, it's little tiny things that make the difference between an okay instrument and a truly great instrument now how long did it take you working at chuck levin's to kind of wean your way off the the orchestra instruments into doing mostly guitars or was it while you were there? Maybe it was still. Oh, 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 
oh, four, four or five months mm-hmm. because because the rental season and the season for doing the orchestra instruments was right before school started when you're completely refurbishing the uh, inventory of various schools. And and then at the end of the year, when you're doing reconditioning before they put those instruments back in storage and during the year, you get some repairs. But it was it was mostly right before rental season and stuff like that. Chuck had a huge rental inventory, too, because he rented instruments to people and uh, people who, who did not want to buy a violin for their daughter for five hundred dollars. But they would rent one for five dollars a week. Yeah. You know, and, and that's the way it is in school systems now. People rent instruments. And so I. Chuck's business at the time, in 19, by 1970, Chuck was the biggest discount seller in the world of musical instruments. Really? He basically, wow. Chuck, Chuck almost single-handedly invented the discounting of musical instruments. you got to remember, until 1968, Chuck had a pawn shop on 8th Street in Washington. He was burned out in the riots, but he, but he already had a great reputation because he treated customers really, really well. And he was willing to expand into this new electronic instrument market before other people were. He saw the potential. And when he his store burned down, he invested in Wheaton in the shop on Beers Mill Road, which is still there today. And... He, he moved everything out there and he started discounting instruments at a time when nobody sold anything at discount. People were suspicious. If you sold things at discount, they figured something's wrong with it. Mm-hmm. They, the, I won't buy something at discount because it's, there's gotta be something wrong with it. I'll pay full price and get the good thing. And Chuck basically created this market. Now, Shortly after that, there was another local store that saw what Chuck was doing, saying, I'm going to do the same thing. And that was Coop Veneman, Veneman's music. And Veneman did it differently. Veneman put catalogs like Sears all across the country. He did a huge mail order business. Chuck didn't do that. But Chuck did have people coming from five states around to his store with trucks to buy instruments. Well, and when I yeah, you were outfitting a band, and you were spending dropping twenty thousand dollars on a PA, which a big PA back then would cost that much. You brought your truck up from North Carolina or South Carolina, and you saved fifteen thousand dollars buying buying your PA system. Wow, I I had no clue when I first moved to Maryland, which was nineteen ninety. Mm-hmm. And I was not actively playing guitar then, but occasionally I would. And if I needed guitar strings or something, and when I got back into playing, I didn't, you know, I knew where making music was, or maybe I didn't. Mm-hmm. And I was down at the mall in Wheaton for the job I was doing at that particular point in time, selling something. And it's ba- his shop is basically, or was basically, right across the street. I think still is. And I went still in there, and I was like, "Oh, look at this place!" And the fellows <laughs> were very friendly, and so forth. And then when I first 
heard about Rainsong guitars, his store was the only place that you could try them. And I went down and tried one. I think that was the last time I actually went down there because then I discovered making music and eBay and all that kind of stuff. But So how long were you at Chuck Levin's? Off and on. Now, I, I, I took a break for a few years. I worked at Microfrets for a while when they still had their factory in Frederick for about a little under a year. I left Chuck's for a little bit to do that. And then I ended up going back to Chuck's. I worked there until 1984, roughly around then. And then I, uh, I left to go into music full time. Now, when you say you went into music full time, what does that mean? I had a band. I have a wife who was, is a terrific singer. She was my meal ticket. She, she, she paid rent for everybody. <laughs> you know, <laughs> guitar players are, as, as many people know, guitar players are a dime a dozen and 14 to the dozen. And Goopman's a little rare, but, but really, you know, there, there's a lot of us. And they will not. Guitar players in and of themselves, unless they're Roy Buchanan, will not pack a club. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even he played the empty rooms, believe me. I know. I was in some of them. Uh, but, but when you have a great singer, people come. Now, had that's you... what people relate to the most, a, a terrific singer. And Pat was a great singer, is a great singer. And, uh, and we, we were making a good living. At that time, unfortunately, I, I, we chose to go right into playing full time right as the live music market started collapsing in Washington, which was the mid 80s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and clubs started closing like crazy. And we were able to pay the mortgage for three or four years. And then we had to say, that's enough. We can't do this anymore. If or the clubs are gone. Now, had you known her? We've been married since 1976. Okay, but did you when you? But you were in bands prior to that, weren't you, or not? I was in a few. Nothing to the success of the of the band that we had then. I, I played part time around the area, mm-hmm. around Washington. Um, you know, well, more, actually, more around Frederick County, Carroll mm-hmm. County, and stuff like that. Uh, a little bit of rock and roll. I played some acoustic duo and trio stuff before that when there was no clubs for that no markets for that uh and then i i played a lot of country music because there was a lot of market for that mm-hmm. when i started playing every fire hall in frederick carroll county montgomery county had a dance at least once a month and they paid good money and uh i i could i could book a band up two nights a week two years ahead of time that wow easily easily i know because when i went full-time i canceled a year and a half's worth of bookings when i went from part-time to full-time i had to call people all these people up and say i'm sorry i can't play at your new year's eve two and a half years from now because that band is no more now had you known pat prior to the band or did you meet her by auditioning Singers. I know I met Pat when I was forming an acoustic duo and I was rehearsing at the other member's house and she lived in a house 
with a friend of hers across the field because Pat had, had just gotten a horse. She was a cruelty investigator for Montgomery County Humane Society. And she had picked up a horse that had been neglected in a field from, you know, and, and mistreated. But she could see the potential in the animal, and she got it and needed a place to keep it. Well, she had a friend who had some land, and she brought her horse out there, and she lived there and worked from there. And we were rehearsing in a house across the field, and they knew each other. And she came over one day and listened to us rehearse. And we became friends and everything. And one thing led to another, and pretty soon we were involved romantically, which was has, has turned out pretty good for me. <laughs> <laughs> now, did she start singing with you before the romantic part started, or was it about no. the same time? No. No, I never knew she could sing. Really? Nope. One time we were, once I think we were, I forget what the song was, but we were we were playing a song and it had another part to it. And all of a sudden I hear her singing a harmony part to it. I'm going, what am I singing for? Mm. It was, yeah, it, it was, it was, it was shocked me I, when I heard her sing and then I, I said, you play me some songs. She played a little guitar. And I said, play me some songs and sing some songs. I want to hear you sing. And before long, it was it was me and her was, was the performing act. And I performed with her as a little duo in some of the bars around Frederick. Uh, we performed at the dam almost before they had any performing down there. At the now famous Carroll Creek Dam, Fred Humbert's place. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and we performed at a place called Tasker's Chance, which was an, another uh, very, very small bar in town. And that, that was about the only place you could perform in Frederick then. There was no other places. There was no coffee houses or anything like that. Now, and then the, that's, that's what, the, you know, we performed there uh, occasionally at, at the Hood College Coffee House. Now, what was your duo name then? It was just it was just Mark and Pat. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was we didn't really have a name. Now, was it a combination of originals and covers, or just covers, or what was your repertoire? Mostly, like? co- mostly covers. Yeah, mostly cover stuff. And she still sings with you now. She still sings with me now. Why would I? Why would I get somebody else? We have some, we still get along. We don't fight too much. When we do, we've learned how to do it well. Uh, <laughs> and uh, she has great taste in music and sings great. So why would I ever change that? Uh, and the other member of our trio, Dale Hooper, is another person who I've played off and on in bands with for 40 years. And you know, we've been friends since we were teenagers. We get along well. We have some of the same musical sensibilities. And uh, we enjoy working together. Now, I think Dale was the reason you were auctioning off or taking donations when I saw the Mark Joy guitar at Making Music. Didn't he have a house that either was, was flooded or burned down or something? There there, there was some a rather dramatic 
rainstorm in northern Frederick County in southern Pennsylvania. Dale's house was in Fairfield, Pennsylvania. And he and his son were in the house when the creek that ran by his house literally rerouted itself through the foundation of his house and blew his house off his foundations and totally destroyed it. Oh, gosh. He lost literally everything he owned. Mm. A, few, a few musical instruments were able to be saved because they were, it was an A-frame and they were up in the higher level. But, uh, but he, he lost most, almost everything he had. And uh, his entire equity of, his, of, of a, life, a lifetime of working was in that house, which could not be rebuilt and the lot couldn't be rebuilt on. Because at, at that point, the house was built before uh, the, the various FEMA laws would allow it, mm-hmm. that disallow it now. So he couldn't rebuild. He basically lost all of his equity, everything. He was penniless without much of anything. And I, I, I saw this when I found out about it. And I got together with a couple friends. We said, we're going to have a benefit for this. And I had a guitar I had built on spec. It was pretty nice. I said, well, I'm going to auction this off. Making Music donated a guitar to be auctioned off. Uh, and we put together a fundraiser through uh, using the Patty Pilatus Foundation, which is since gone. But uh, to, to raise some money to help Dale get start towards a new house or at least help him keep body and soul together for a while, uh, which we did. <laughs> And uh, hopefully that worked out as well for him. That's a story for Dale to tell, not for me. Well, the fact that you're still friends and you still play together is wonderful. Oh, I can't think of anyone I'd rather play music with. Now, when you play as a trio, I know Pat is the upfront person singing. Are mm-hmm. you, and, and Dale, is he more of a lead player? He tends to play electric guitar more than acoustic guitar, though he's a fine acoustic guitar player as well. Uh, and I tend to, I, I've played a lot of electric guitar in my day, but uh, I tend to gravitate more towards playing acoustic guitar now, and I enjoy it more now. Now, what would your style be, your style of player? Are you a combination finger picker and strummer, or are you primarily strummer, primarily finger style? I, I do both. I'm pr- primarily a flat picker. Oh, okay. That comes from I'm your country days, I guess. So, but though I do, I do finger pick some stuff. I'm not anywhere near as uh, good with finger picking as I once was. My hands just won't do it as well anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I've, uh, they've been around a while, you know. <laughs> so uh, they they don't they don't move with quite the same agility, particularly my right hand. Uh, as it, as it once did. And uh, finger picking is not as easy for me as it was 35, 40 years ago. Now does work woodworking, which can be diff- tough on hands, I would imagine. I mean, I did a little bit when I was younger. The um, I would think that working with wood and chisels and hammers and all kinds of things, saws would be detrimental to a guitar player's hands. As long as you're careful with the bladed tools, no. Okay. I have cut myself pretty badly a few times, particularly when I was stupid with a chisel, uh, you know, moving a chisel towards yourself and things that you just know better than to do. Mm-hmm. 
but uh i've been lucky i haven't i've never done anything uh permanent <laughs> cutting myself that way power tools are much more dangerous much more dangerous but things like band saws and jointers and mm-hmm. uh, table saws. but uh i do limited amount of power tool things i found i can do most things with hand tools that i could do with power tools just takes me longer yeah now how did you transition from repairing instruments to building them well i always wanted to build them i never rented or owned a place that had the facility for building a shop ever and uh even where i build now i'm i'm very very space challenged uh i i build in a space that's about eight feet by 12 feet uh most most makers even people who make by themselves that i know of have at least a 20 by 30 room to build in but uh (laughs) i don't i i do things uh in a very small area which means i cannot build eight or ten instruments a year i can build if i work really hard about four mm-hmm. uh because i just don't have room to have instruments in the various various stages of development in, in a in, you know space them out they, they consume space while you're working on them uh so i don't build very many instruments now if i build one or two a year now it's that's that's about what i'm doing now you when you when the 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 vet music venues started closing up and you and Pat had to make the decision to do something else you got into what IT or something I did I I went yeah, I took I took an office job for a while and went back to school I just took a few courses here's to start learning how to program computers and uh this was the late 80s I got very fortunate. I had a friend in the business and his company was looking for people with potential more than they, than education. I, I never got a degree. I learned how to do it. I was pretty good at it. It came to me easily. And my friend who, who actually may be a person, you know, who's quite, quite an accomplished IT professional, Dan Mack. Oh, of course. Okay. Dan, Dan got me a job with a company called Sage Technologies, who was a bleeding edge technology company in in uh, Gaither, uh, Rockville at the time. He got me an interview with them. The woman hired me, and this is a strange thing. She, I, I said, she said, offered me the job, and I said, now why are you offering this job? I don't, I don't have a degree, and 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 everything i you know i'm an ex-musician doing this she says that's why i'm hiring you she said i've been headhunting for 15 years the best people i've ever placed in it have been ex-musicians really and i said well that's that's odd and but then i i started thinking about it and i thought about it a couple years later after i've been doing it for a while and the same skills are necessary writing computer software is are necessary to be an improvisational musician you have to be able to recognize harmonic patterns in logic hmm. that are running simultaneously you have to be able to follow a five-piece band and know what every piece is going to do 
at a certain point and see how five different threads make a whole, make one thing. Well, in computer programming, you have sometimes dozens of things happening through this program at the same time, but they have to converge. They all have to converge to have a result that's harmonious, that, that works together, that accomplishes a task. Particularly with the kind of programming which I was doing back then, which was IBM mainframe, huge number crunching. You know, running millions of dollars through a program to produce uh, 40,000 pension checks at, the, at the, you know, once a month. Sure. You know, crunch, crunching literally millions of bits of information to calculate what these checks were going to be and everything through one computer program. But you had to see where all this logic came from, where it drew things from all these different places. And uh, I put it together. And music and programming, I saw her her reasoning then. And some of the best programmers I've ever known in my life are ex-musicians. Wow. It's odd, but it just worked out that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that kind of makes sense in a way. Um, I'm, I don't know if you know Ed Barney or not. He's out of the kind of the Shepherdstown, Hagerstown, Martinsburg area. Phenomenal mm-hmm. guitar player. And I, I said, how do you approach the guitar? He goes, I look at the fretboard as math. And so that would kind of tie in sort of, I would think, with the programming. Because it's a, it's sort of like all equations, isn't it? Knowing what, what takes it... Well, again, I'm I don't understand it in the very least, so I'm just kind of throwing it out there. But wouldn't you wouldn't you go wouldn't you get into the theory heavily? Yes, it's very much math. I yeah. mean, that that's what that's what you're doing when you make music. You're yeah. You're, you divide a vibrating string in half, and you have an octave. Mm-hmm. You know, you you cut it at another point, and you have thirds, you have fourths, you have fifths. You know, that's how you create your scale by the, dividing that mathematically moving thing into mathematically pleasing parts of course different people do math different you know you play an arabic scale it's not the same as a western scale mm-hmm. now, uh, go ahead i was going to say now did you have musical training early on or is it seat of the pants type of learning i i had some piano when i was young i never got into theory i have a brother who very much got into theory and, and, and consequently became a much more accomplished musician than I will ever be uh, as a keyboard player. But uh, I, when I play guitar, one of the beauties about for guitar about me is it's accessible and pleasing at any level you want to approach it. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things that attracted me most. You can take the simplest chords, you know, throw together a C, a D, and a G, and you can play half the songs that were written. Yeah. You know, there, there's an awful lot to be said to that old country music axiom. All I need is three chords and the truth. Yeah. And it makes a great country song. And you can play really simple stuff and have it sound really pleasing. And if you play it with feeling, it doesn't have to be complicated, it doesn't have to be super intricate. The beauty of the sound created by a fine instrument and the simplicity of the notes moving through the air create beauty. And you can do it at that level, or you can do it at the level of, uh, of a Pat Metheny or a Leo Kotke or a Tommy Emmanuel. 
in which case you you're going to absolute virtuos virtuoso control of the instrument. Uh, I never got to that point playing guitar. I was lucky enough working at Chuck's. I got to know people like that, become friends with some of them, hang out with some of them. Uh, just because sooner or later in Washington, D.C., all musicians ended up at Chuck's, mm-hmm. you know, whether, whether it was Roy Buchanan or Nils Lofgren or, or Danny Gadden or, you know, Tom Principato, people like that. Uh, Mike Melchoni, who was just changed my life as far as electric guitar playing goes. Mike's in L.A. now. But after a Grammy with Buckwheat Zydeco in 25 years with him, Mike, Mike showed his credentials. His, his stuff paid off. But Mike played for 30 years in Washington in little bars and clubs. Great, great Telecaster player. Now, what is your preferred music to play nowadays? Nowadays, well, my taste runs so, so far. I mean, we play anything from Van Morrison to, uh, you know, uh, Carlene Carter. I mean, <laughs> we, we, we just, we, you know, we, 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 we pull it, we're old, so we have old songs, some of them, but we also play some new stuff too. Um, so I just, I just like, there's, there's only two kinds of music. Duke Ellington said it best. There's good and there's bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's only two kinds of music. After that, it's all stylistic taste. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you know, I like big band music. But I'm not going to listen to it all day, every day. Sure. You know, I I love country music. Not what you hear on country radio today, because that's not country music. Um, I, I won't get into that discussion here. It's not the time or place for it. But I, I really love Haggard and Jones and uh, and that and that style of stuff of Buck Owens, you know, the Bakersfield stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh to me, one of the greatest songwriters America has ever produced is Hank Williams. Yeah. And such a short career. Oh, my God. You know, how many people can write the song, You Win Again? Mm-hmm. How many people can take lyric so simple, a chord structure so simple, and yet say things so profound about a relationship as a song like that? Not many. It, it would be amazing if some of the musicians who we lost at early ages, to see them today, if they had lived, and what their careers and what their music oh. would have been like. I, to think what Jimi Hendrix would have done scares me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it actually could be frightening how yeah. good he, he, he would have been. I, I was one of the fortunate people who got to see him live several times. And uh, Hendrix is one of those players. If you didn't see him live, you have no idea. Really, you really don't. His recordings, as amazing as they are, don't even come close. Not even. They're not even close to well, what to what he he projected when you saw him live on stage. Well, that brings. Go ahead. That brings up a question. When you mentioned recordings, have you ever recorded? Uh, no, nah, not seriously. I I never had the money to go into studios and record. You know, I I had enough to pay rent and uh, pay the mortgage, and that was that was about it. You know. 
Now, while you were working in the in, in doing um, writing programs, were you still, or were you building guitars at that point? No. Um, I had an old friend, uh, a, a gentleman named Don Olson, who I knew through oh, yes. playing music. Yeah. And Don got into building guitars. And he, he started started building guitars at home. And uh, he had a house that was big enough for a small workshop. And, and I knew he was, he was building some guitars, not many, but a few. And, uh, and he, well, he knew I repaired. And every once in a while, he'd call me up and say, Mark, can you show me how to do this? Things that he didn't know how to do. Like uh, on an early guitar, I showed him how to fret a guitar, how to put frets in a guitar. Because I was replacing frets in you know, eight or ten guitars a week. I knew how to do it and do it quick and do it well. He had never fretted a guitar, so one of his first instruments, I put the frets in for him and let him watch me do it, and then he, you know, showed him how to do it. Uh, but Don had space where he could work, and I ran into him years later, and, and by this time, I hadn't been playing music for a living for a good while, and Don said, Mark, why don't you come over to my shop? I've got a shop, and I know you've always wanted to build a guitar. Why don't you just come over and hang out with me in the shop and, and build a guitar, and, and we'll just hang out together and stuff like that. And I said, well, sure. This is around 2005. So I went over, and I built my first guitar in Don's shop. And Don showed me some things that he had. He had tools that I had no space for and and uh, no area for, and... and uh, I built a guitar and uh, I got the bug and I bought some wood and I built another one and I built another one. And then I, I got into some design ideas of my own. I knew what it took to make a good acoustic guitar and I had some ideas and uh, I've since incorporated those ideas into the guitars that I build now. And, they turned out well. They sound good. They play well. And uh, I just, you know, like I say, I haven't built a lot of guitars. I built, you know, maybe 15 or 20 over the past 15 years. Now, do you so still? I'm sorry. Am I still building? Right now, I don't have any under construction. I probably have more. I know I have more wood than I will ever build with in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Because I sort of wood is is a thing that you collect. Yeah. When you, especially when you get the opportunity to buy really good wood, uh, and unfortunately, the hobby of building guitars has really taken off in the past fifteen or twenty years because there's so much information about it. Like when I started, how do you learn how to build a guitar? How do you learn how to bend the wood? There was nobody teaching anybody how to do that. Now I can show you forty. YouTube videos on any step in guitar building. Now, what is the most, in your humble opinion, since you've built guitars and since you've mm -hmm. repaired them, what is the most difficult part of building an acoustic guitar? Only one that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's yeah, you know, there yeah, you know, lot there there are a lot of guitar shaped objects in this world. Mm -hmm. They aren't guitars. Yeah, I mean, they, they are, you, you build a, a, something that's shaped like an acoustic guitar and put strings on it, it's going to sound basically like a guitar. 
But uh, when you play a 1934 Martin, a good one, and and you play, uh, you know, uh, an Esteban that's that sells for $175 on TV, and you put them side by side, it only takes a couple notes for you to know this is a guitar, this is not. Well, what do you do to create better sound? What are some of the, the tricks? And they're not really tricks, I'm sure, because you've had to they, learn They are them. tricks. Everybody, everybody knows them. Guitars, you got to remember, guitars, very, very thin pieces of wood under terrific amounts of tension. A really great guitar is built light to the point where it almost implodes, but it doesn't. So it, has to be, it has to be light enough to vibrate violently with string vibration and not pull itself to pieces. So how do you know how thin to make it and how to brace it so that you're almost there? Uh, some of it was, was, in my case, I learned a lot repairing old instruments. Mm -hmm. You know, you have an old Martin that's in, that's in pieces and you don't want to put a new top on it because, you know, right there goes 60% of the value of the instrument. Mm -hmm. You learn how to take the back off and you learn how to rebuild the top from the inside, retaining all of the original bracing, if you can. And if you have to replace parts, you make them look exactly like the pieces that you had inside of it to the exact shape, the exact weight, everything else. And, and after a while you learn what made this guitar sound so good and this guitar not sound so good. And, and, and I was fortunate enough at, at Chuck's to be exposed to literally tens of thousands of, of instruments. Most of them, like, like most instruments, most of them are, are average. Some of them are really good. And every once in a while, you reach those ones that are voices of the heavens. Mm -hmm. And even among antique, very valuable vintage instruments, that range still exists. I have played old herringbone Martins that are literally worth $100,000 that were junk. Really? They did not sound good. So why are they worth so much money? Well, first, first of all, the reputation of the instrument, those, those that sound like junk are few and far between. Mm -hmm. They were so well made. The materials were so good. And the design, most importantly, the design was so perfect to do what they were supposed to do that they, they all, they just create that sound. And with time that changes, I don't know what, you know, uh, Tony Rice's 1934 Martin, it was Clarence White sounded like when it was new, but I know what it sounded like after it was played for a lot of years. Mm-hmm. And it sounded incredible. Put it in, in somebody like Clarence White's hands or Tony Rice's hands, and you know you have a, a tool for the ages. I, I have also learned from owning a guitar over a long period of time, a good guitar. My first D28 I bought when I was working at Chuck's. I almost got fired. Chuck got a big shipment, one of the biggest shipments Martin ever sent out. There were over 27 D28s. This was back when they were vacuum sealing the cases 
in, inside of uh, the, the guitar and case and everything were put in a vacuum pack. Wow. I opened all, all 27 of them in the basement of Chuck's to pick out the one I wanted. And I played all 27 of them. And the one I, I picked out just blew the others away. Brand new. And, and oh boy, was Chuck mad at me. <laughs> was he mad at me? Yeah, because I sell a guitar. That guy wants to know that he's the first person to see that guitar. <laughs> but, well, they, I had already opened the ball. <laughs> I got you. Chuck, Chuck, thank goodness I was, a, I was a good repairman and I worked cheap. So uh, I, I kept my job. But um, God bless Chuck for, for keeping me on after that. Uh, but, uh, now, do you still, case, still have I, I that, guitar? that guitar? No, I don't. I, I had that guitar for many years. It was a 1972 Martin. Took a month's pay for me to buy that Martin, even at the incredible deal that Chuck gave me. So it was, was not a casual you know, purchase. And, uh, but I played that guitar for six or seven years. And the difference in that six or seven years of being played for two hours a day every day is a leap in sound mm-hmm. guitars change dramatically when they're played and if they're not played for a while they will revert to not sounding as good i've seen that i've watched it happen before my eyes because i've owned instruments for 30 years and some of them i kept because i like the instrument because it was an old instrument that i bought at a pawn shop cheap and i played it a lot for a while and then i put it away because i was doing something else and then I got it back out and I went, this just doesn't sound as good. But I keep playing it for a while and it would open back up. Yeah. G- guitars, the, the, the way the sound vibrates through the wood of a guitar, I'm convinced, changes as the guitar is used for that. The tree learns to do what it needs to do to get the job done. I, that's the only way I can describe it. I know that sounds like some mystical... Uh, I've got to use my language carefully here. Mystical crap. Uh, And and in some ways it is. But the guitar changes from being parts of a tree to being this musical instrument. It just so happens that spruce is this tree that happens to be built in such a way that when you cut it vertically along the grain, split it vertically, it has incredible strength with combined with incredible lightness and it transmits sound phenomenally if you have the right piece of wood. Now, what is your, what is your favorite combination of wood as a builder? My favorite combination. Oh, as a builder. It's, it's, it's going to be really good European or Adirondack spruce. With, uh, yeah, it's going to be a tropical rosewood sides are back. And I know I'm really torn on that right now because tropical rosewoods are one of the most endangered things in the face of this earth. Mm-hmm. And I will never buy Brazilian rosewood again. And I, I almost weep over that because it is the most phenomenal musical instrument wood for guitars that exists. But there is almost none of it. The stuff that is out there is being illegally cut and uh yeah it makes it makes great guitars there there is some 
still uh, pre-banned rosewood around out there, but not much of it. And uh, most of the stuff that's finding its way into today, today's instruments is not legal. It's yeah. just it just got around the stuff, you know. Um, it it makes a phenomenal guitar. Of the woods that I can use safely, that that uh, are not creating an environmental problem or a uh, species uh, depletion problem, I love koa. Koa is one of the most beautiful woods on the face of the earth. It grows only well, it grows mostly in Hawaii. It grows uh, transplanted in other places, but uh, it's a it's a beautiful wood. It was in danger, but the nice thing about koa is it really grows fast mm -hmm. compared to other hardwoods. And uh, and people in Hawaii are starting to fence it off and and uh, realize the value of what they have and uh, and the cattle grazing and stuff that has gotten rid of most of it is is being uh, curtailed in, in Hawaii now. And, and that and the clear cutting of forest for pineapple growth uh, is, is being curtailed. So hopefully, hopefully Koa will uh, be making a comeback in 40 or 50 years with some really beautiful stuff. Uh, now, what's your favorite body style in an acoustic guitar? My favorite body style, I like, I've started with dreadnoughts and I love dreadnoughts. I love the projection. I love the drive they give to a musical group, but I have come to personally favor a smaller body guitar. Uh, the guitars that I that I'm building lately have been the body shape, basic body shape is after an, an older model Gibson. One of my favorites that happens to be very rare called a Nick Lucas. Mm -hmm. Nick Lucas was made in the. Uh, well, the body style changed several times, but the one I really like was the body style that was prevalent through the 30s, and it's it's very much like an L double zero. It uh, they were built in 12 and 14 fret models primarily, and but they have a the Nick Lucas had a deeper body than the typical small body guitar. It had a body depth like a dreadnought, which is to say almost five inches, four and a quarter, three quarters to almost five inches. And that body depth adds a whole lot of bass to a small body guitar. <clears throat> so I, I, but the width of the guitar top is uh, between 13 and a half and 14 and a half inches, as opposed to the almost 16 inches of a dreadnought. <clears throat> but I found with even with a small body guitar, I can get a lot of low end out of it uh, with a deeper with a deeper body, and by making the proper shape and size sound hole and the way I brace the instrument. And my favorite guitar is not 12 or 14 frets to the body, but 13, mm -hmm. which they did with a few Nick Lucases. I don't know why they did it. I can't tell you why the 14 fret guitar came about by just taking a large body 12 fret and they didn't change anything on the guitar except they removed two frets worth of the top of the guitar body. If you look at the shapes of the the old bodies when they start went from a a, a twelve fret guitar Martins to a fourteen fret, the, the body shape changed, and the top of the guitar got kind of squared off. Mm -hmm. They basically went to the forms and filled it in, and they just took 
an inch and a half off of the top of the guitar body and built the neck and the scale all the same. But the sound hole moves, the X bracing moves, and that 13 fret guitar body places the bridge at a certain point on the top. There's just a really, really sweet spot for driving the top. And it, it makes for a, uh, a great sounding guitar. Now, how do you brace the backs? Is it, do you do the typical, what I call the ladder style, where it's the, uh, the most, hor- most guitars are still done with the ladder style. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't do what Martin did, which was really big, wide, not so tall mahogany braces across the back. I use guitar bracing, which is a little more like Gibson, which are fairly tall and relatively narrow bracing in the back. I think it gives a little more motion to the back and creates a little more of a pump mm-hmm. than that. I, I have thought about the idea. I know some people X brace their backs. I've thought about doing that and try it because, uh, I mean, some very reputable builders do that. Some people who produce really, really fine guitars because the guitar does have a certain amount of pump action between the back and the top. The sides you want rigid, and and that's part of the reason for the guitar to have its shape that it has. It adds strength to the body. The sides aren't bent into that beautiful feminine hourglass shape for a reason that's purely aesthetic. It's done for strength, and because uh, it because it it creates a box that is very very strong, much stronger than a square box. The square box will collapse. Hmm. It'll, it'll just cave in. Now, how long how long would it take you if I came to you and said, Mark, I want you to build me a guitar, and we choose the woods, and I say, go. How long would it take from picking that wood to ending up with a finished guitar? Uh, I could probably do it in two and a half to three months. Mm-hmm. And what takes the longest? Finish work. Does it? Yeah. Uh, I'm at the point now where I am on the next guitar I build that I finish. I'm probably going to French polish it. I love nitro and I love, I like spraying with it. It makes all the, all the instruments that I love most from the classic golden era of guitars are finished with nitrocellulose lacquer, but nitrocellulose is extremely polluting. Mm-hmm. extremely poisonous extremely dangerous stuff and uh, I'm to the point now where I'd rather put in a lot more labor and and stuff than deal with that I, I'm i at an age too where I, I can't be exposed to that stuff too much sure. anymore yeah. it's going to hurt me I, I know people that it's, it is almost irrevocably hurt uh-huh. and uh I, I do like the stuff. I still still have a little bit of nitro around the house here, but I haven't sprayed it for, like I said, I haven't, I didn't build a guitar last year, so I haven't sprayed it for a year. And I'm probably going to give away or sell my spray equipment and go to French polish, which is put on by hand. And French polish is done with shellac, which uh, I don't know if most people know that or not. Shellac is edible. It is? Yes. You know what it makes M&M's shiny? No. Shellac. <laughs> yes. 
I, I know because we, we used shellac when I was a kid, when you did woodworking. And I just assume since paints and things like that and solvents, you don't allow those to touch your mouth that shellac was the, about the same thing. Well, if you do it with, with denatured alcohol, it's poisonous. Sure. But that's because of the alcohol, not, not, not the lac bug resin. The resin, the resin comes from a, an insect that populates a tree called the lac tree, primarily in India and in Southeast Asia. And these little bugs secrete incredible amounts of the secretion, which will pile up on the tree and around the base of the tree. And somewhere way back in the ages, people found, <clears throat> excuse me, that they could find this resin, heat it, clean it up, clean all the impurities out of it, and it would make this incredible, hard as a rock, transparent finish if they dissolved it in just simple alcohol. And the best kind of alcohol to, to dissolve it in is drinkable alcohol. High proof, though, something like Everclear, which you would never want to drink straight because it would just fry your brain. You know, it's 95 percent alcohol. Mm -hmm. But you dissolve these hard, hard flakes of of shellac in alcohol. Let it go to solution. Then you put it on with a pad, a little bit of oil, which allows the pad to move over the top and not stick. But then the oil is removed by more alcohol on the top and it evaporates off. You end up with this hard, beautiful, glossy finish that is basically secretion of an insect on a certain type of tree in India. Now, is that a long process, applying hand-rubbed shellac? Uh, depends on how good you are at it. I mean, uh, George Bruno, who, who builds incredible classical guitars, can French polish guitar in a day, a classical guitar in a day but he is I, I couldn't do that for me it, I'd, I'd have to build it up slower and i don't think my elbow would hold out <clears throat> but uh but no I'm, I'm gonna have to get back into it and uh and uh and and see how it works out for me because i'm not gonna breathe nitro fumes again yeah and it, and the, the 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 one knock against against shellac is if if you're an alcohol drinker don't spill your drink on it why wow, it dissolves it, it, or it will dissolve. sure the alcohol will dissolve the shellac the nice thing about it is it's very repairable modern modern polyester finishes which is what martin uses now on all but they're very highest graded instruments in fact they're using uv cured polyester where the, the finish is put on, sprayed on by robots, not even people anymore, if you've gone to the Martin factory. They expose it to ultraviolet lights, and it is hard as a rock in five minutes. Mm. Most, most guitars now are, are, and even a lot of boutique-built guitar makers are using UV finishes because the fact that it saves so much time, and time is what you sell, mm -hmm. expertise, and uh, I know Kevin Ryan, who built his instrument, started around 12K. He builds a marvelous, marvelous guitar. He's, used, he's been using UV finishes for about four or five years now. Now, does on he. A, on a, a $12,000 instrument. Now, does a UV finished 
guitar, is it the same amount of protection? Does it sound as good? Probably, probably more protection. If they can put on the finish as thin mm-hmm. as a nitro finish. The nice thing about a nitro finish or shellac finish, it can just barely be there. I mean, you're talking about three thousandths of an inch of finish yeah. to protect the surface of that guitar. Literally three thousandths of an inch. Polyester finishes definitely usually go on at three to four times that much just because of the nature of the finish. And if you look at some of the, some of the less expensive guitars, you're looking at the finish and you can see it looks like, man, this thing's hard as a rock. Well, yes. And it keeps the top from vibrating. Yeah. The, um, the top has to be able to move as thin a finish as possible to protect the wood mainly from elements because you protecting the wood from a bad owner is not a reason to protect the wood. You know, uh, if, if you treat any instrument poorly, you can damage it. You can break it up. Nothing's going to protect an instrument from an owner that doesn't care for it. Right. It's like, uh, Oh boy, I, I can I can uh, I can go between subjects so quickly, Todd. I'll lose you. In the <laughs> uh, I was gonna I was gonna I was just gonna segue into what gives me ninety percent of my repair work. All right. So what gives you ninety percent of the year? At, at this time of the year, guitars that are improperly humidified. Yeah. I've fixed fifteen sets of cracked tops on guitars this year. Yeah. And it has to do with the fact that cold. When you heat cold air, warm air holds a lot of moisture. Cold air does not. Well, the air in your house was cold. You drew it into your house and you heated it. So what that cold air, that warmed up air now, wants to hold more moisture. It needs more moisture in it. Where is it going to get it? It's going to get it from your skin. It's got to get it from the furniture in your house, from the floors in your house, from the walls in your house. And it's going to get it from that guitar that you have hanging on your wall or on the guitar stand. That's why you always get a humidifier for a good guitar. Mm-hmm. And you don't leave it on a guitar stand in the winter. You put it in its case with the humidifier. Otherwise, the top will crack. Well, and I'm a firm believer of humidifying the, the whole house as best I can, too. That, that, that's the ideal, if you can do that. If you can do that. That's, that's, that's hard to do. It's hard to keep a house in this area in, at 40% humidity in the winter, which is right around the bottom edge right. of what you want it to be. You want it between 40 and 50%. Overhumidifying is a problem, too. You know, too much humidity. Uh, I, I, ask, ask most electric guitar players, when does your guitar sound best in the clubs when you're playing? What's in winter? Yeah. Why? Because in the summertime, your speakers in your guitar cabinet take on moisture. What happens to paper when it's wet? And all speaker cones are paper, mm-hmm. most of them. They get soggy. Yeah. They aren't crisp. In the wintertime, all of a sudden, that electric guitar is crisp, articulate. Everything about it is what the, is coming through the amplifier. It's beautiful. In the summertime, man, my guitar sounds like mud in this club that's packed full of people and has an 85% humidity in the air. Yes, because your speakers are saturated. Yeah. It sounds terrible. <laughs> so how does someone who has a guitar that they need work done on it, how do they find you? 
Uh, mostly word of mouth. And to be honest with you, I've been repairing guitars off and on for 50 years. I'm cutting way back on the amount of repair work. I'm turning away some work now. Yeah. Uh, my eyes are not quite what they used to be. I find myself having to squint more or to put use a magnifying glass to do certain types of work. I'm not doing much custom wiring anymore. Stuff that requires me to uh, uh, put in push-pull face switches and uh, coil taps and stuff like that where I have to work on little tiny wires to get soldered to really tiny joints because I don't, one, I don't find it enjoyable anymore. It's not any kind of a challenge and and a lot of people can do it and there are lots of people who try and make a living at this which i don't have to do anymore i'd rather see the work go to them Mm -hmm. they'll be faster they'll get your instrument back to you faster and uh they need to make a living i'd rather just do that i do restorations of antique instruments because i love them and i like to have the instrument in my hands and i'd like to see it up to its full potential. I have a, a, a mid sixties, beautiful little double O Martin in my house. Now that I probably would have told the guy, no, except that I looked at the instrument and went, yeah, this needs to be right. It's got a really fine top on it, even better than most Martins of that, that era did. And, uh, and it's going to be a really, really fine little instrument. Once I, I do the little bit of work that it needs to get it back together. Um, uh, last spring, I, I put together a, a J45 for a fellow who belonged to his brother, and it was kept in a closet for 35 years without a case. Ooh. Yes. It it literally had a square crack in the top where the corner of some kind of box cross, put a cross-green crack in the top, and I could see where the corner of the box hit. The guitar was cracked around the linings on the top, almost around the entire guitar. It had braces broken. They hadn't pulled loose from the top, but they'd split. Uh, the, the, the neck, fortunately, didn't need to be reset. It was pretty good. The bridge was split. I had to make a new bridge for it. Uh, and, you know, some other things to it. But, but it was a beautiful 1963 J45. One of my favorite guitars one of the most inconsistently made guitars over the history of the instrument ever made by Gibson. Most of them are just average. All of the old ones are bringing top dollar now. Couldn't give them away 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. But but now they're bringing five, six, seven thousand dollars a piece. Some of them much more if they're uh, from the from the war era. But most of them I've ever played are just real average guitars. Even the old ones, really average. But every once in a while, every once in a while, you run into one. It's just amazing. The best guitar I ever owned in my life was a 1957 J45. And I'd do anything to have that guitar back. I sold it in a moment of weakness when I hadn't played it for 10 years. And I said, somebody needs to be playing this. And I sold it to a guy for much less than it was worth. And I'll never see it again. Even though I told him if he ever sold it, he had to sell it back to me. But I know I'll never see it again. Uh, it, and still to this day, I've I've been looking. I built guitars that sound better than that guitar, but I really, really like that guitar the way it sounded. And uh, the, the guitars like that that are special are are rare, even among different vintages. You know, 
Well, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I hope you have. I have. And I, and I hate to cut us short, but I only have so much bandwidth I can work with for the podcast, so we're going to have to end it pretty much there. But I do have a question for you. Yes. Your next guitar that you build, do you know what it's going to be? Yeah. Yeah, I do. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a, a European spruce top on some really, really highly figured mahogany that I have that I got from a friend of mine about 10 years ago that I probably would never find anything like it again. It's a cross between a, a plum pudding, bird's eye, and highly flamed mahogany. Wow. It's, it's, it's some of the most spectacular mahogany I've ever seen in my life in terms of figure. Now, figure doesn't make sound. It has nothing. But it's eye candy. It's, <laughs> it's, it's just, exactly. It's just eye candy. For me... That's the kind of eye candy I like, is the eye candy that's in the wood itself. The wood has incredible chatoyance. That's the word for you, all, all you listeners, to look up. A great word. <laughs> Think mother of pearl that looks eight feet deep. Oh, yes. That's, chat, that's, that's chatoyance. And, and that's, that's the kind of potential that this back has, that you can look into it, and it's like you're looking into the fender of a, you know, a candy apple red 56 Corvette, you know. It just goes down to where you can put your arm into it. <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing that guitar, or at least a photo of that guitar when it's completed. And maybe even by then we can socialize back to what we would call a normal type of socializing so I can get to actually play it, hear it, and touch it. That would be a lot of fun for me. Well, yeah, it'd be a lot of fun for me too, Todd. I'm, I'm hoping the venues open back up and... And people can get out and, and gather and, and hear live music again. Because as you well know, uh, as well and better than most people, there is no music but live music. No. Recordings are terrific, yep. but there's no music like live music. Yep, that is true. It's a totally different thing. Yep. As much as I enjoy listening to CDs, and I don't have a turntable, although I still have albums, I'll get a, a turntable, but it is not the same. You're absolutely correct in that. No. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Mark. And uh, please tell Pat I send my hello. I see her walk by my house, actually, on a regular basis. I think she still walks with that friend of hers over here in Clover Hill. Uh, she does. Yeah. Well, tell her, you know, I, I'm pretty sure she knows where I live. And my little black Fiat has my name on the side with the apples. So maybe, you know, if she thinks about it and they're not deep in conversation, I may be sitting in the living room looking out the window when she goes by. She can wave. <laughs> all right well listen you have a terrific rest of your day and thanks again for joining me okay and thanks for uh putting up with my uh, mental wanderings oh it was a pure pleasure trust me thank, okay thanks so much mark thank you todd all right yep bye-bye well that was mark joy a guitar builder luthier whatever you want to use word wise to uh, signify that and it's amazing when he talked about all the different instruments he has repaired over the years, starting with violins and orchestra instruments, all the way to rebuilding some of those guitars he was talking about. And uh, I can't imagine, to me, it would look like firewood. So the fact that he can take a look at that and figure out a way to put it back together so it's a playable instrument that looks nice and sounds wonderful, it's amazing to me. Well, thanks again for joining me on this 
podcast. Look forward to, uh, I look forward to the next one. I've enjoyed doing all of them. And again, thanks so much to Mark Joy for joining me. The Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series is produced by Todd C. Walker at the Wispy Mop Music Studio in Frederick, Maryland. All music on the podcast is played by permission from the artist, including this bumper music by Jason Shaw. If you're enjoying the series, please feel free to share the link, wispymopmusic.podbean.com, or you can find the show on either iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. 